Blog Talk Radio. On today's World Footprints Radio Show, we'll learn what it means to live fearless as we travel around the world with the amazing race host, Phil Kogan. I decided that one of the things I'd have on my life list would be to face my fear. Robert Rose, the host of Raw Travel, believes that travel offers transformative experiences in many different ways. You can both have fun and have life-changing experience. It is said that Dominica is the only Caribbean island that Christopher Columbus would recognize if he were to come back today and will learn why. National Geographic Channel host Kat Digney traverses the continent in the great human race and discovers our common humanity. Regardless of our differences, politics or religion or even language barriers, what was greater than the differences was the desire to connect. Join us in our conversations with travel television host and visit Dominica along the way on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We'll travel to the Caribbean island of Dominica with tourism director Colin Piper, who will share the story behind the island's nickname as the Nature Island and its reputation as the Caribbean of old. We will also enjoy authentic travel experiences with raw travel host Robert Rose, who shares the joy of exploring the world and connecting the dots between cultures and communities. Also coming up on World Footprints, We will shine a destination spotlight on Iran and Mexico and will explore the great human race with outdoor survival guide Kat Bigney as she travels around the world retracing the path of our ancestors on the National Geographic show, The Great Human Race. But first, Phil Kogan, host of the multi-award-winning reality show, The Amazing Race, tells us how elements of the show mirror his life. Phil shares with us how a near-death experience inspired a new outlook on life and a mantra to leave no opportunity wasted. And of course, we'll discuss our mutual passions for travel and scuba diving. I guess, um, you know, we're, we, we share a passion for travel, which is a, which is a good thing, which is what's brought us together. It's a great thing, and congratulations on another uh, season of Amazing Race. In your career, if you if you get a job that lasts 15 years in the entertainment industry, you're on to a good thing. I have to say, I have been blessed. Travel is transformative, but Phil tells us how a scuba diving trip when he was 19 years old changed his life. Yeah, I started diving, really snorkeling, at a very early age, um, growing up on the island of Antigua and it was just a natural um it was a natural thing to do there just because there's so many beautiful beaches 365 beaches on the island of Antigua and I just fell in love with the idea that I could be in the water and see the marine life and the coral and the colors and the warmth of the water and and as soon as I was able I I I got myself scuba qualified and started diving and that was to me I think it's the closest thing that I can think of to what it must be like going into space where you're just weightless and you're in another world and when I was 19 uh, I was shooting a television show and we were doing a piece about a wreck that was down 120 feet and it was it was a, a wreck, a huge wreck, a 22,000-ton ship that um, had landed on its starboard side. And we went into this ship, and I got separated from my dive buddy and didn't know where I was and panicked, started breathing too fast. So I was beating the, the valve on the uh, on the regulator and started to take started taking gulps of water and... At 120 feet, you you really suck through your air very quickly, and I was convinced in that moment that that was it, that I was that I was going to die. And 
Um, thankfully, I didn't move from where I was. And my dive partner came back, got me, got me out of there. And I was so happy to be alive that all I could think of was all the things that I hadn't done in my life and thought, wow, it could have all been over. I'm 19 years old. It could have all been over. And so that's what prompted me to come up with this personal philosophy. No opportunity wasted now for short. And I wrote down all the things I would have regretted not doing had I died. And my list started off as quite a selfish list. I was 19. And over the years, uh, I think it's become more philanthropic and more about trying to do things for other people and inspiring other people. Um, I think that comes with just maturity and having I've got a, a child and I think you suddenly realize that the world doesn't revolve around you as you do when you're 19. Um, and it's just opened up so many doors for me. And I, I love I love it because it's helped me live with real passion. Phil cheated death on that scuba diving trip, so he asked why his original life list included such risky activities. Well, it's a chapter in my book, Face Your Fear. And you know that expression they said, when you fall off the horse, you just get back on. You don't... Mm you don't walk away, you, you get back on the horse. And I guess I worked out early on that being claustrophobic and being scared of being in that situation, again, I didn't want it to ever interfere with the way I live my life. So I decided that one of the things I'd have on my life list would be to face my fear, to intentionally subject myself to things that I was scared of. So that I was controlling fear rather than fear controlling me. Now, it doesn't mean you necessarily conquer fear. Um, I'm still scared of tight places, small places. I, I'm still claustrophobic. But I've proven to myself that I can control that fear. And it's not going to control me. And so a lot of people don't do things in life because they are scared. And so my list, my book is about trying to help people face that fear. And a lot of times the fear that people have is stopping them from doing what they want to do. And they 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 will literally take the easier path, like like moving to an it's paralyzing. It's like moving to a new city, starting a new job, starting a relationship. So many things hold us, you know, fear, sorry, holds us back from so many things. And so in order to push back against your fear, you have to practice pushing back against your fear. You can't, um, you, you can't expect to be good at something without practicing it. Right. And facing your fear is one of those things you've got to practice doing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what happens is we tend to live safer and safer lives and then our lives become... I don't want to say small as, just, as, as much as just limited. It, just, it limits the way we live. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick with my wife, Tanya, and we are talking to Phil Kogan, host of the Emmy Award-winning show, The Amazing Race. Phil tells us that he wants his book, No Opportunity Wasted, to inspire others to face whatever fear they have and to live a life of passion. I love passion. I love passionate people. I love finding a passion. I love meeting people with a passion. Uh, if you think that life is a gift, if you believe that life is a gift, then it's incredibly important important to to not squander that gift. You know, right. to really utilize the life that you've been given, mm -hmm. whatever that comes. You know, however that comes, um, that life, whether it's because you maybe are living with MS or I find that passionate people generally have come through some kind of a, the most passionate people I've met have come through some kind of adversity. I think it's because maybe they're more appreciative because they realize they, they do start to focus on the good things in life rather than what's wrong. Mm -hmm. One of the things I say is focus on what you do have and what you can do as opposed to what you don't have and what you can't do. Um, 
That's a beautiful philosophy. It's 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 the, really the definition of an of, of an optimist and a pessimist. Um, when there's certain people that you are around that you get around where you pick up that positive energy because when you're with them you feel like anything could happen, and the glass is half full. They really do focus on what is right in the world. Mm-hmm. And conversely, I've been around people who tend to label everything that's wrong. And there's a lot wrong. I mean, there's a lot of things that I wish I could fix in the world. There's a lot of suffering in the world. There are a lot of things that we can't do because of certain circumstances. But again, you have to go back to what's right and, and, and really zero in on that. And we're all dealt certain cards. We don't know what those are, whether it is living with MS or with a disease or a learning disability, physical challenge. It's what you do with the life you have that matters. That's really, I guess, the message that I've been trying to share with people. Uh, get on and 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 make the most of what you've been given. Phil believes in giving back to others. A few years ago, he participated in his own amazing race, when he did a bike ride across America to raise money for multiple sclerosis research. We asked Phil if his work on The Amazing Race is an extension of his life philosophy, especially since racing teams are now seen giving something back to the communities they're racing through. The team that makes The Amazing Race, Bertram and his wife Elise, who created The Amazing Race, we share a passion for sharing the world. And so um, I really was lucky that I was connected with like-minded people, people who who want to celebrate what's right in the world, want to celebrate the human spirit. I have often said that The Amazing Race is one of the few television shows that focuses on what's right in the world. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when you see the rest of the world on TV, something is going wrong. And I guess we have an opportunity to say to an audience, look what's going right in the world. Look at these people and how passionate they are. Look at how interesting these places are. And as much as I love America and I love what America stands for, it's important to appreciate that we are not the world, we are part of the world, and that there are so many cultures around the world that we have borrowed from, if you like, because we are such a mix of so many different people that make up America. It is a united, global country, if you like, and so America has Italians and the Irish and Polish and Russian and Israeli. We have got, you know, an African. We're, we're just, we are such a mixture of everything. Right. It's, it's also nice to go out and see where we're all from collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it that the Italians are the way they are and they're passionate and they love, they really, there are a lot of cliches about the Italian people in terms of loving food and olive oil and wine and they've got great history. And when you go to, I would say Italy is one of my favorite places to travel to in the world because because of the passionate people. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing I've learned through my travels, it's that places are about people and not about what's there in that place. Banff, uh, which is such a beautiful place, yeah. or the Massifs down in um, in Argentina, or the Southern Alps of of New Zealand or the Swiss Alps, if you look at the mountain ranges in those four places, you'd be hard-pressed to distinguish one from the other. Mm. What makes those four destinations different are the people that live in that environment. And that's what is always... That's always what I found most fascinating about traveling, is connecting with the people who are on the ground the people who live in their countries. In addition to being an ambassador for world travel, Phil is also very involved in promoting his home country of New Zealand and was recently made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. 
I took it upon myself to become a self-appointed New Zealand ambassador because that's what New Zealanders do. I mean, you can't find a New Zealander anywhere in the world who isn't a self-appointed ambassador. So it started originally as uh, something that I did just because I'm a Kiwi, and that's <laughs> what Kiwis do. We're, our population is only 4 million people, and 1 million of us live overseas. Over a period of time, I was approached uh, by New Zealand Tourism and Air New Zealand to take on a more official ambassador role, which I willingly did and have done for over a decade. And this award that I was given, it was for my services to television and, and tourism. There was a lot more we wanted to ask Phil about New Zealand and his family's involvement in conservation efforts there. But time was limited, so Phil left us with a final word. And just remember, as I say at the end of The Amazing Race, the world is waiting for you. For a link to Phil's book, No Opportunity Wasted, visit this show page on worldfootprints.com. destination spotlight, Sadra Azimi shines a spotlight on Iran from the Adventure Travel Show. Iran is a completely different destination from the rest of the world. It's a big country with a lot of different ethnic groups that each have their own distinct culture in the different corners of the country. It's a country that has been there for as long as history. It's beautiful culture, beautiful landscape, great food, great cuisine. And the thing that lasts with people the longest is the hospitality that they see from people. Fortunately, Iran, for the past 30, 40 years, has been getting a lot of bad media rap. But right now, people are starting to go back increasingly more going to Iran, and all of them have the same experience. They see the great hospitality of the people, and they see wonderful sights. And they love it. Any American that goes there and comes back recruits another 10 people to go. As far as different cultures and ethnic groups go, uh, depending on the geographical uh, position in the country, in the northwest we have Turks, in the west we have Kurds, Lors, we have Arabs in the south, we have Baluchs in the east. And uh, the central Iran, you have uh, Persians who are the dominant ethnic group. Uh, as far as sites go, the sites in Iran are incredibly diverse. They go back as far as uh, 2,500 years BC. And, uh, but the most important site, uh, you could include Persopolis, Pasargad, uh, Naqsharosam, these are the sites from Achaemenid area in, uh, around Shiraz. And then as you progress through the country, when you go north, you start to see more uh, components of the Islamic culture. So some of the most beautiful mosques in the world, incredible Islamic architecture in Esfahan. And as you go northwest, you see the roots of Christianity in Iran. And uh, so you see all kinds of these diverse sites. And uh, the country is big, but it's also small enough that you can see all of this in a relatively short amount of time.
Rose is the executive producer and host of Raw Travel, an independently produced television show that invites viewers to enjoy an authentic travel experience through its lens. The show integrates volunteerism, ecotourism, and just pure raw travel. Robert shared some raw travel with us just after returning from a shoot in Africa. We started off in South Africa, which some people jokingly called uh, their locally Africa light. Other people called it the livable Africa. But to me, it was still amazing because it was my first time on the continent. And the more official name is the gateway to Africa. So a lot of people will start off in South Africa before getting a little deeper. And we did the same thing, started off there and then went to Ghana, which is a little more raw. Mm-hmm. So uh, speaking of raw, uh, raw travel is an independent production. What was your inspiration for creating this series? On the creative side, I've always been independent. And uh, maybe that's because I'm not very good, or maybe it also speaks to the fact that I just don't work well under corporate structures. It's probably a little bit of both, maybe, but being independent has allowed me to grow as a creator. And the inspiration for this particular show was I had the opportunity to travel in my early 40s. I won't tell you how old I am now, but I'll tell you that I'm still in my 40s. But in my early 40s, I had the experience that most people have maybe in their 20s, if they have it at all, and then I sort of had like a gap year or a sabbatical and an opportunity where I didn't have to worry about money in the immediate future and I could just travel and enjoy life and and uh, indulge my curiosity. And when I was able to do that, I lived abroad in Colombia, South America, for uh, about 11 months. It was my base of operations, but I just traveled all throughout Latin America practicing my Spanish, getting to know the different cultures. And what I found was basically... Uh, what I consider really the way most people are traveling these days, but not the way that's, you know, really presented on television, especially in the United States, was the non-luxurious type of travel, the type of travel that was more authentic and real and uh, incorporated, you know, giving back to others and living maybe a more socially conscious life, which uh, is what travel inspired me to do. So I just wanted to share that with others. Now, Robert, you start to touch on socially responsible travel and just doing things differently than travel shows that are currently on television. What's the premise behind Raw Travel TV? Well, we we have a you know a broad audience because we're broadcast TV. We're syndicated, so that means we're on ABC, NBC, Fox affiliates. So at any given time, and this was borne out recently when I was speaking at the Boston Travel Show, I have to be aware that the audience may be a bit more, a bit different than myself. But so I try to like serve both be true to myself and also true to the audience, which can be a bit broad and in age and demographics and likes and dislikes. And so what I try to do is with the show, uh, have this sort of broad overarching theme of socially responsible travel, which means, you know, taking care of the environment, uh, being sustainable when you travel and live and caring about others and uh, about the planet, while at the same time having these adventures and travels and being curious about the world and try to do it in such a way that it's not preachy because I think that would turn people off. And basically, through my own experiences, show how you can both have fun and have life-changing experiences at the same time. And isn't that really what it's all about? I mean, you only go through life once as far as we know. Um, And um, if you can you know, have these experiences that enhance your spirituality, your mind, your body. Um, You know, why wouldn't you do that if you could, uh, rather than just, you know, be a slave to the routine? That's what it's about. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are speaking to Raw Travel host Robert Rose about authentic travel and transformative experiences. Visit the show page on our website at worldfootprints.com for a link to the Raw Travel website. So what has been one of the most transformative travel experiences you've had? You know, one of these days I'm going to look back and I'm going to really appreciate what I'm going through right now. It's like anything. When you're in the, in the moment, you know, I'm worried about deadlines and editing and, and getting shows in the can and, you know, budgets and, and all the challenges of being an independent production, but... You know, I've had so many transformative experiences, so many times where I'm like, oh, my God, this is just surreal. Uh, but the most tangible one 
And I knew going in that it was going to be like that was when I went to the Pine Ridge uh, Indian Reservation in South Dakota and just hung out with the uh, Native Americans there. That's the poorest county in the United States. They have a lot of issues, you know, with alcohol abuse and, and poverty. And, you know, life expectancy is the lowest in the Western Hemisphere outside of Haiti, which blew my mind. And um, most distressingly, what really got to me and why I knew it was going to be an emotional experience was the kids and teens, you know, killing themselves, committing suicide. So obviously it's bigger than poverty because I've seen poverty like I just saw in Africa or or in the Philippines. Just, you know, poverty that that we don't even really experience in the U.S. And, you know, you can't say that in Pine Ridge they're as poor as those people, you know, in other countries, but they, for, for some reason, are more hopeless. And that's what I thought was such a tragedy there and it is a tragedy but what i found when i got there was that there's so much love and hope and people trying to turn the situation around both from the reservation itself and from travelers and people who've been there and heard about it and have said you know this is unacceptable to me i'm not going to sit idly by while this happens in my own country and that filled me with a lot of hope and i still get you know emotional when i talk about it when you're going on location to some of these wonderful places, how much of the location do you really get to enjoy whilst working? Well, I think it's a double-edged sword because definitely you're fast traveling through places, which I prefer slow travel. where You can take your time and really get to know people and settle in and, and feel like a local, if you will. So we don't really get the opportunity to do that because we're, we're really you know, moving fast and uh, up against the deadline. And that creates some friction, especially when you're in places like Africa or Central America or even Pine Ridge, where people may not necessarily answer emails properly. <laughs> you know, they're on a different time frame than we are. But I also, on the flip side, have these experiences that I might most likely would not have as a traveler without a camera. And these are those mind-blowing experiences that just, I was in Norway, for example, and I saw the fjords. And then we went to this farmer who raises sheep for, and he makes his own cheese. And then I hung out with a guy who makes shoes by hand still. And I'm like, most likely if I were just traveling through here, I wouldn't see all this in one day. So it's sort of like I got my mind blown to where I'm sleeping that night. And I'm like, this was one of those days where you're just like, this is amazing. I hope I can hang on to the ceiling. And I've had a few days like that. And that's when I really know you know, how blessed I am. And so I try not to complain too much because most people I know would love to have this quote-unquote job. They don't realize how much work goes into it, how little I get out of it in terms of finances, at least at the moment. You know, but the reality is it sure beats sitting in an office, uh, you know, or checking emails, which I have to do plenty of as well. What do you want viewers to experience when watching your show, Raw Travel? I want them to, first of all, know that I'm not a travel expert. I'm just a travel enthusiast, just a normal, regular guy, not a professional TV host either. And I want them to be inspired to take travel, to do it on their own, not to simply just be entertained by watching myself. Of course, I want them to be entertained, but more than entertained, I want them to be inspired. And if I can inspire a few people to get a passport or to use their passport more often, and to think a little differently about how they travel and live their lives, then, you know, mission accomplished. Check your local listings to find where you can view Raw Travel or visit rawtravel.com for more information. We also have a direct link on this show page at worldfootprints.com. Listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Coming up, we will explore the natural beauty of Dominica with tourism director Colin Piper, who will tell us why the island is a breed apart from its Caribbean neighbors. Then, Kat Bigney, co-host of the National Geographic Channel's The Great Human Race, exposes us to the field of cognitive archaeology and following human migration from Africa to North America and discovers our common humanity along the way. And stay tuned as we shine a destination spotlight on the diversity and beauty of Mexico. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, we invite you to visit our website, worldfootprints.com, where you can peruse our library of radio shows, articles, and more, 
You can also find links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Caribbean island of Dominica is legendary for its unspoiled beauty. The Dominica tourism director, Colin Piper, tells us that the island is much more than a stunning nature adventure or scuba diver's paradise. Colin says that Dominica's rich culture offers a blend of English, French, African, and Carib peoples, which includes the only remaining population of pre-Columbian Carib Indians. For those who may not know, where is Dominica located? Well, Dominica, first of all, is not to be confused with the Dominican Republic. We, in fact, are the Commonwealth of Dominica, and we're smack dab in the middle of the Caribbean archipelago, with our immediate neighbors being the French overseas departments of Guadeloupe to the north and Martinique to the south. So... For those who would be traveling to Dominica, more than likely, flying from the eastern seaboard, you would be going either through San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then connecting into Dominica. That flight would probably be about an hour and 45 minutes from San Juan to Dominica. Why is the island referred to as the nature island? Let's say if Christopher Columbus were to come back, Dominica would be the only uh, island he would recognize. Um, we are a very mountainous island and kind of a, a breed apart, so to speak, from the sun, sand, and sea of the Caribbean. We have all of that, but we also have the rainforest. Close to two-thirds of the landmass in Dominica is oceanic rainforest. And so with the natural assets of hills and mountains and valleys and rivers, that we have, it just seemed natural to be tagged the nature island of the Caribbean. There has been development, obviously, but because such a vast amount of the landmass is in fact oceanic rainforest, which um, we have about three or four national parks, protected areas, the like, it is still recognizable and, you know, called the Caribbean, the Caribbean of old, so to speak, the way the Caribbean used to be. Uh, so you get uh, a little of both. You get the modern conveniences in Dominica, but you also get the ability to be one with nature. Colin says that Dominica has many aqua assets for visitors to choose from. We boast of 365 rivers, one for each day of the year. We have, you know, if you're here on a two-week vacation, you could go to a different waterfall for each day. And it continues once you live, once you leave land and go into the ocean. Our diving is top 10 in the world. And because of the depths of our ocean in between, off the coast of Dominica, we have resident sperm whales almost year-round. And so it's just a haven for natural habitat and for those who really resonate with nature, so to speak. It's just a wonderful place for people to visit. We learned that Dominica's cultural landscape is comprised of a rich mosaic of indigenous people and Europeans. In terms of people, the majority would be people of African descent, but we do have the last remaining indigenous people of the Caribbean. That would be those formerly called the Carib Indians and currently the Kalinago. As a matter of fact, they have about a 3,000-acre reservation, so to speak, where they live. And visitors today can mingle with them in a number of ways. Obviously, there you know, is the Kalinago Barana Ote, which is a model village where you can go and see how they used to live, sample some of their cuisine, look at their handicraft, which is unique to Dominica. Now, besides the indigenous people, we also changed hands four times between the English and the French. And so there's a, a French influence to Dominica, which you can see in uh, our speech, in our dress, in our cuisine. And so from a cultural perspective, besides the indigenous people, you also um, uh, are privy to the Creolite, so to speak. The closest thing to that in the U.S. would be the, the New Orleans, uh, Louisiana um, culture. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. 
We are talking to Colin Piper from Dominica Tourism about the Nature Island's history, culture, and tourism offerings. We have a link to the Dominica Tourism site on this show page at worldfootprints.com. Creole food is uh, the island um, specialty, you know, um, featuring fresh tropical fruits and vegetables. You know, you have a myriad of local fishes, you know, with island herbs and spices. You know, uh, dishes tend to be spicy but not flaming hot. Um, And, uh, you know, I like to say that you can get a gamut of cuisine. Um, we, We won't boast of international cuisine, but we will boast of local and what I call roadside cuisine. A lot of barbecue grills going on where if you want to get the flavor mm-hmm. of of what Dominica is in terms of some steamed fish or some barbecue chicken, you can get that. But certainly a great uh, variety of local um, dishes with the island spices. For many people, gastronomy is an important part of the travel experience. So Colin shared some of the local dishes a visitor to Dominica would experience. In terms of the spices, you're looking at some of the traditional things like chives and parsley and things like that. But, you know, there's always a little habanero pepper or scotch bonnet pepper in some (laughs) of the things that we do. And then we tend to do a lot in a one pot with a lot of soups and also a lot of stews with some of the staples. Uh, Ground provisions are a staple here. Uh, some of the stews and the soups with, uh, you know, a little pepper and kind of equivalent to what you might consider the bully base, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you love about Dominica? What do you love about your island? Well, I think, um, you know, it's uh, a little of everything, but uh, it's really the ability to uh, come to Dominica and to reconnect I think it's a transformative experience in the sense that, uh, you know, you could have three people come to Dominica, you know, one goes straight, one goes left, one goes right, you know, from the airport, they meet up a week later, and all would have a different set of stories to tell. Some would have experienced Dominica through the friendly people they met. Some would have experienced Dominica through the solitude, you know, how they reconnected with nature. Some would have experienced Dominica through the activities in terms of hiking or diving. Um, But, you know, the two things they would all have in common is that they would have experienced wholesome cuisine and that they would have uh, experienced the awesomeness of, of nature. To plan a visit to the nature island of Dominica, visit dominica.dm or see this show page at worldfootprints.com for a direct link. In this destination spotlight, Cesar Mendoza shares the beauty of Mexico and its diverse offerings. Mexico is not only sun and beach. That we have amazing, beautiful beaches, but there are also many, many other things to do while in Mexico. Starting from enjoying our great gastronomy, um, which is uh, since 2010 a world intangible world heritage. While in Mexico, they can go and visit the Mayan ruins if they are in the peninsula of Yucatan or other states nearby, or the ruins of Tenochtitlan, Teotihuacan in Mexico City. Um, or um, if they want to do, I don't know, water sports, for example, water activities like in Cabos, swimming with whale sharks, with uh, sea lions, with dolphins, or even ride camels in, in Cabos. You can ride a camel, believe it or not, in, in Cabos, well, in Cabos. I would say that our civilization is um, I, I, a little bit more than 3,000 years old, uh, starting with, the, uh, to mention a few, the Olmecs, the Zapotec civilization, um, going through the uh, Teotihuacans and then uh, all the way to the Aztecs. Uh, we're talking about uh, the 15th century, um, and then around that, then the 15th century, the, um, the Spaniards were we were colonized by the uh, by the Spanish, um, and that's and that's very interesting because uh, the culture of Mexico, like other Latin and American countries, but in particular Mexico. That fusion of, uh, of, of Spanish, uh, European uh, traditions with uh, with the um, with the uh, our traditions from from the Aztecs, 
makes this smell that we we are now the Mexican the Mexican uh, the, the country of Mexico, and uh, we are a very specific, very particular, very unique uh, in terms of food, in terms of. Um, uh, it, it's, it's amazing how, for example, going to Mexico City, you can be standing one point, uh, and on one side you have the cathedral, uh, 15th century cathedral of Mexico, 16th century, and on the other side you have the, uh, the Aztec temple. And if you look to the other side, you see a 21st century building, one of the tallest in Latin America. So it's, um, it's um, and that, and that you, can, you can see it in our people, uh, different, uh, the color of the skin of the, in Mexico, different colors, white, uh, a little bit brown, um, and, but at the end of the day, all Mexicans, and, uh, and uh, we have a very particular, it's an asset, there are, the people in Mexico is an asset, because when you go to uh, in vacation in Mexico, you can feel the warmth uh, and the service that, that we provide. Is it possible to retrace the footsteps of our ancestors from millions of years ago? More so, could we survive today using just the simple tools they used? Those are questions that Kat Bigney, Outdoor Survival Guide and co-host of the National Geographic show, The Great Human Race, attempts to answer. Kat guides us on a virtual journey of her adventure. So a little birdie told me that you actually love the outdoors. Is that true? It is, absolutely. I grew up in a more remote setting and just have spent my entire life appreciating natural spaces. So Mm -hmm. that is definitely true. The birdie wasn't lying. (laughs) Well, this little birdie also told me that as a child you would pick up roadkill and you built your own shack. <laughs> so are, is there a correlation between those two uh, events? Yeah, I mean, to sum up a really long, lifelong story, I, I grew up in the mountains, and my, my mother's a biology teacher, so she homeschooled me, and so I had a lot of freedom, and I was just curious about the natural world, and instead of playing Nintendo or, I guess, Atari or whatever was around when I was young, I would explore, and I was really curious about prehistoric skills and prehistory. I had a, a grandfather that um, was a, a POW and spent about a year surviving as a prisoner of war, and he was also a trapper for the government. And so I just like to follow him around and watch him do his daily tasks and check his trap line and, and things like that. So I picked up quite a few skills at a really young age, and then I was just curious, and I guess I didn't know any better, so... I acquired sort of these survival skill set because of it. I guess that experience, you know, with your granddad and in the, the country really prepared you for this show, The Great Human Race. What is the premise of The Great Human Race? So I have a partner that I'm working with, the co-host um, Bill Schindler, who's an archaeologist, um, a professor of archaeology, actually, and I um, travel around the world retracing a path from Africa to the United States, following our ancestors' footprints, so from Homo habilis to Homo sapiens, using only the tools that the archaeological, um, that there's archaeological evidence for. So as Homo habilis, we only had essentially two tools, a stone and a rock. And then as we progressed to become Homo erectus, we're able to create fire. And then as Homo sapiens, we have spears and other weapons, and we continue along this linear path, not only in time, but with our tools, but we're also migrating. I do have to say, though, that this isn't intended to represent the entire migration, because there were several migrations that occurred throughout history, and it wasn't linear. We're just representing a model to understand the gaps in the archaeological record, and to give insight, I guess, to the field of cognitive archaeology. And one reason that I'm really happy to talk to you, Tanya, is because I know that one of the missions of the World Footprints is to share common humanity. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, really is at the core of this project. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. You said you started in Africa, and then where did you mm-hmm. go from there? So we spent actually quite a bit of time in Africa. We were in Tanzania, Uganda, and Ethiopia. And then um, continued out to the Middle East, to Oman, and Turkey, Georgia, Mongolia, and the Alaska and the Pacific Northwest. Really? I think, I think I've covered them all. <laughs> a, a lot of ancient, what we consider perhaps ancient lands, 
And was mm-hmm. that your first time visiting many of those places? And, and what was that experience like for you? Many of them, for sure. And it was absolutely mind-blowing because it wasn't like, you know, we were traveling as tourists. We were really embedding ourselves in these environments. So if we ever ran into any people while we were scouting or whatever, they were people that were living off the land and practicing sort of these historic, traditional food acquisition methods and things like that. So we were able to really learn from them as we went. And it was unique because we weren't sort of, I guess, buffered from nature in many ways. Like I was exposed to contaminated water and to any of the same like parasitic elements that anyone who lived in these environments would have been. And it was a really beautiful experience to, I guess, not have that buffer, to not be on, you know, a tour bus or to not be sort of protected and estranged from the environments that I was in. I think a lot of the time when when many people travel, they want these exotic experiences without taking on some of the threats or risks or fears they might have. But one thing that I found time and time again, it was, you know, and, and I have to also say that Bill and I were pretty remote. We generally weren't around a lot of people, but when we were, when we were traveling, when we were scouting, Anytime we met people that were local to the area, time and time again, regardless of our differences in politics or religion or even language barriers, what was greater than the differences was the desire to connect. And that was so eye-opening for me. Wherever we went, from Africa to Mongolia, people just wanted to connect. It sounds so transformative for you, Kat. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I can hear it in your tone, and, I, and I'm so happy that you had uh, a chance to uh, experience that and can now be an ambassador for humanity through uh, the show and, and mm-hmm. really through your own personal daily life. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're exploring whether science and archaeology can uncover humankind's ancestral journey with Kat Bigney, co-host of National Geographic's The Great Human Race. So I can see where your training as an outdoor survival certified person came in (laughs) handy, but what about your education? You have a degree in anthropology and earth sciences. Were you able to apply that knowledge Mm -hmm. to what you did on the show? In some ways, I mean, I think that there's sort of a a language that you learn to speak and, and there are some things you learn about appropriateness you know, in academia, and that was valuable. And there were different things that I that I learned that I'd read, but nothing can prepare you for the raw impact. I think it's one thing to read about something and to theorize; it's another thing entirely to experience it. And what actually prepared me for this more than anything was probably that I grew up with an atypical background, and and I didn't learn survival skills from a book or from you know, classes, I acquired them along the way. And so having the ability to embed myself in any environment and just problem solve without thinking about right or wrong and how I was supposed to handle situations was beneficial. And I don't want to downplay having a degree. I think it, I think it's a good thing. I think it, it's helpful to understand certain aspects of anthropology, archaeology, and, and, you know, the environments that Bill and I were in. But I think that we are all hardwired to survive. And our ability to creatively problem solve and come up with solutions, whether it's in the form of turning raw materials into metal, which we did somewhere along the way, or to innovate and create a sharp knife out of a rock, or to, you know, be building checks or spaceships that we are now. These are all a product of who we are and our DNA. It's something that I think we have encoded in us. And along those lines, you should never underestimate anyone. (laughs) So I'm learning like these things from people we're meeting along the way and my mind is blown. It doesn't matter how much education I have or what degree I have. Like there's so much that I don't know and will never know. Sure. And I am grateful that I've had the opportunity to learn from so many people across the globe. And yes, a formal education is important, but there's education beyond that. There's education at at a human level. It makes pure sense with your background in outdoor survival training, (laughs) Uh, but I didn't know if your educational background came into play when being considered for this show. When talking to National Geographic Studios, that was project like September of 2014, so for a long time. It's no coincidence that Bill Schindler was cast as the co-host because he specifically is able to reproduce stone tools that are museum quality, that represent a time period. And it isn't just that I have a survival skill set, I also have that in accompaniment with a degree in anthropology and prehistory in my research and earth sciences. So these things were 
taken into consideration. This was a very difficult project, and, you know, it wasn't ever like I just showed up on location and did my thing. I've been working nonstop for a year doing research and consulting and really embedding myself not only in every location but also in the process. And it was essential. This was like an impossible project. <laughs> we have two people trying to recreate these scenarios in history and gain an understanding of what it would have been like to have been some of our earliest ancestors, but the environment's different. Even though we're doing research in paleobotany, there's no way we can recreate these environments, and we're just two people. We're representing the social infrastructure that existed, you know, two million years ago, and so there are so many limitations, but there's also a lot that we can do. So having a background for Bill and for myself was really important in terms of maybe even things that will never show up on television, but things that we were able to do that we understood so that we could move forward. Now, how has this journey really impacted your personal life? There are so many layers, really. So first of all, like on an academic level, like of course there are things that I learned along the way. I learned things about archaeology, about our species, and about humanity, and those are very meaningful for me. And the insight that it gave me to the human spirit, being able to have access to so many different people across the globe in such a short time, changed my perspective forever and really made me understand what it means to be a global community member, to be an advocate for humanity, really, and for the entire human race. And to understand that, you know, regardless of these differences, there's just the differences that we turn into wars are so small <laughs> compared to the very basic needs of human and how great it is to see just someone who has such a different background than you to have total compassion on you. For example, I was in Mongolia for a while and it was between episodes and I damaged some of my clothing and my hands were so just mangled and destroyed from some of the work that we'd been doing and they just didn't work properly and I had to repair some clothing before we started working again and this beautiful, beautiful Mongolian woman that lived in the Gary Yurt was this amazing seamstress and tailor and she offered up her time to help me and she didn't care who I was or where I came from or where I lived or how I lived. She assumed I was actually an actress, which is pretty funny, but she volunteered her time because she just saw that I needed help and we didn't speak the same language at all. It still communicated and we were laughing and it was just one of the most beautiful, pure, moments I think I've ever had in my life. Oh, that's lovely. And uh, it just, and I've had so many this last year. It's humbling. It is so humbling. It, it's made me care about global problems in ways that I didn't think that I would, to feel them, to, to understand, you know, when I hear stories about, you know, Syrian refugees and the struggles they've had, you know, like I've been in areas where they've probably been and to feel like they're, you know, like I'm part of that group and that community and not just that I want to do something because I want to be a philanthropist and a good person, but because there's a part of me and a part of my heart that's connected to them. It's a strange thing. <laughs> well, Kat, thank you very much for spending time with me on World Footprints and sharing your story. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. To watch episodes of The Great Human Race, visit the National Geographic website for Showtime listings or see this show page at worldfootprints.com for a direct link. heard that from Phil, we heard it from Kat, we heard it certainly from Robert, and the one common denominator for all of them and us is the passion that we share for travel, the passion that we have for other people and for learning about other cultures and communities and just really giving back and certainly the focus on volunteerism, which The Amazing Race embarks upon and some of their shows. Uh, sustainability, which ties in very well with Dominica and their commitment to maintaining the natural treasures that the island has. And Dominica really is a testament to sustainability and to 
really having something that's unique in the Caribbean. The island is not really that developed compared to its neighbors, and they've really made an effort to try to maintain this uh, pristineness about the place, and that's intriguing. And I also found intriguing, too, were kind of the cultural links between Dominica and places such as New Orleans, where we've spent a lot of time because of the the common Creole culture, which is uh, a right. big part of their food culture in Dominica. One of the things that also intrigued me about uh, the interviews that we shared today, Robert Rose's focus on volunteerism, on, on sharing communities, on connecting communities, and Cat Bigney's enthusiasm for what we do and how it reflects her passion, her interest in what they're trying to do with her show, The Great Human Race. And of course, you know, Phil's near-fatal scuba diving accident, which transformed his thinking, his way of life, and inspired commitment to giving back and philanthropy and his appreciation for life and how that's reflected in what he does on The Amazing Race. And the funny thing I you know, when I was talking to Phil, I kept wanting to ask him, okay, give us some tips. How can you and I get on the amazing race? Because as you know, honey, I've been taking copious notes over the years watching the amazing race. And we've all, we figured out what you would do. You would be the map reader. I'd be the driver. And I would eat all, do all the food challenges because you're a little bit picky. Yeah, I am picky. I'm not interested in eating bugs or any of that kind of stuff, but uh, it would be interesting to see how we would do with the stresses and strains of The Amazing Race. And I want to come back to Robert and Kat because they really speak to this notion of a common humanity. And in the exploration of what they do through their respective shows, this really came out, and it was nice to feel that there are a few more people on this uh, island of uh, socially conscious travelers and that you're not out here in the wilderness. And to hear it from other people was truly refreshing. Yeah, and when we talked to, to Robert and Kat, and when I actually met Robert in New York, you know, there's some people that we meet on this journey that we're we're on that we really connect with and you know for me of course Maya Angelou was one person but I really connected with Rob and Kat and I looked at one of the episodes that Kat is in uh, in the great human race and they really are kind of bare bones you know they're going through this discovery using bare bone methods and she talked about how much her hands were torn up and how affected she had been from different uh, viruses or, or bacteria or what have you. And I looked at her photo and I thought, oh, my gosh, she is such a beautiful woman. I could not imagine her, you know, roughing it as, as much as she does on that show. Thank you guys again for joining us. In closing, we'd like for you to consider this thought. We travel not to escape life, but for life not to escape us. As always, we have really enjoyed spending this time with you, and we thank you for inviting us into your life. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing another amazing journey with you on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.